Welcome to Murderous Roots, a podcast that explores the family history of notorious killers. I'm Denise, and with me is Zelda. Now, let's get started. Zelda. It's been a while. Oh my gosh, Denise. This has been such a full life since the last time we talked. My goodness. Oh, what's been going on with you? Well, just, you know, I'm moving. I have the new job. I have the like life going on. And then we're talking about Bonnie and Clyde, which is a very full story with many intricate and interesting details. Oh yeah. I've learned so much I did not know Mm -hmm. (laughs) beforehand. I mean, and I, I got to tell you, so we had just talked about watching the movies around mm-hmm. this and like, oh, homework. I tried to watch the Bonnie and Clyde one with Faye Dunaway and Warren Beatty. Oh, yeah. I couldn't get beyond the first 10 minutes. Because huh. I'm like, no, that's not how that happened. <laughs> that's not how they met. And from there, I'm like, oh, and that's not how they look like. Because they look different than you think from uh-huh. that movie. Yeah. And I'm just like... I just couldn't do it. And I'll I'll try again and try to let go of that. But Mm -hmm. it's so not what they were. And from my understanding, we might discuss this further. The family was not happy with that movie. Yeah, that's what I read. Because they didn't feel like it really represented who they actually were. It Mm -hmm. wasn't because they were showing the murders as much as it was. Mm -hmm. That's not our Bonnie and that's not our Clyde. Yeah. Yeah. Well, along, I get that those now. Lines, <laughs> along those lines, I watched The Highwaymen last night oh, on Netflix, good. which um, for our listeners follows the story of two Texas Rangers, the ones who actually did eventually track down and take down Bonnie and Clyde. Mm-hmm. And it's Woody Harrelson and Kevin Costner. And normally I'm not super attracted to either of their movies because Woody's oh. tend to be incredibly violent and Costner's tend to drag a lot. But in this one, they were fantastic. It was a fantastic movie. So I watched it beginning to end, not even playing a video game while I was doing it. And it was was very cool. I liked it a lot. I I liked that movie a lot. It gave a whole different perspective on the actual events. Was it true to fact? Not completely. But, you know, they have to make it good for a movie. Right. right. But it was pretty close. Mm -hmm. And it was so good. Exactly. And the thing that I liked about it is that it really didn't glamorize Bonnie and Clyde because so Mm -hmm. much of what's been done with Bonnie and Clyde, it's, you know, hey, the young lovers, blah, blah, blah. They were cold blooded fucking killers, you know, Mm -hmm. and it's it's interesting about how that works. So. um, So anyway. It was good Most definitely. Yeah, it was. And as for you, I like a lot of Kevin Costner movies, maybe not all, but I have one recommendation for you. Oh, yeah? And that's a movie, it's an older movie of his called No Way Out. Okay. And it's a spy thriller. Ooh. And, oh, Gene Hackman, I think, is in it as well. Okay, I'm writing this down. I'm going to watch it. And he's a Navy intelligence, Kevin Costner's character. Well, there's a situation where somebody kills and they make up the story that there's an embedded Russian spy in their intelligence system and they're out to find them. Oh, wow. It's very intense, very quick. And the end will just leave you going, holy cow. Okay, I'm totally going to go see that. So, but back on track. (laughs) (laughs) There is so much information on Bonnie and Clyde. Hmm? So we're separating into two because 
two different people, two different families. They were never mm-hmm. married. They were just lovers. Just lovers. Well, I have to say, because the story of Bonnie and Clyde is so intertwined from almost the very beginning of it, mm-hmm. it's really hard to tell the story of one without giving spoilers for the story oh, yeah. of the other. So I think everybody knows, I would think, that Bonnie and Clyde were famous criminals in the 1930s mm-hmm. whose adventures were glamorized by the media, and they actually had quite a fan base at the time. Oh, yeah. Yeah, their legends only then grew after their deaths. And so they had this sort of like Romeo and Juliet meets Robin Hood aura about them. Mm-hmm. And that entire aura was a lie, Denise. Oh, yeah. It was a lie. And so we're starting with Bonnie today. Mm-hmm. Well, let me tell you about Bonnie. Bonnie Elizabeth Parker was born on October 1st, 1910 in Rowena, Texas, into a comfortable church-going home. She had an older brother and a younger sister. When she was about four, though, her dad died, and her mom moved the family in with her parents in a rough neighborhood of Cement City near Dallas. Now, I realize I said cement instead of cement, but we'll go with it. Now, by all accounts... By all accounts, this tiny girl was sharp as a knife. She was an honor student. She was beautiful. She loved poetry and literature, and she dreamed of becoming an actress. She was devoted to her mother, and she kept a diary and wrote poetry her entire life. In fact, Clyde's sister Nell described Bonnie as an adorable little thing, more like a doll than a girl. She had yellow hair that kinked all over her head like a baby's, the loveliest skin I've ever seen without a blemish on it, a regular Cupid's bow of a mouth and blue, blue eyes. She had dimples that showed constantly when she talked and she was so tiny. She was only four foot, 10 inches tall and weighed between 85 and 90 pounds. Her hands took a number five glove and her feet a number three shoe. Oh, can you wow. even imagine a size three shoe? I'm like, I can't even imagine that. That's well, like baby my, shoes. Yeah, I can imagine it because that's what my kids could wear right now. <laughs> Tiny little person. Yeah. So I have to say hers is a classic tale of books before boys, girls. Because <laughs> she would have had quite a respectable life. But for the influence of the men in her life. So, you know, that whole bad boy with a heart of gold thing. Bad boys never actually have a heart of gold. So she was a sophomore in high school when she started crushing on a bad news boy named Roy Thornton. In September 1926, just days shy of her 16th birthday, she quit high school and married the 18-year-old. Now, it's a little bit better than if he'd been like 30 years older than her. But still, this seems ill-advised. Now, despite Bonnie's tattoo on her leg with their names conjoined, this romance lasted less than a year because Roy couldn't keep it in his pants and was running around committing crimes. So Bonnie left him and moved in with her grandma. The entries in Parker's diary written during this period are filled with despair, with passage after passage complaining of intense boredom, which makes sense. She quit school. She quit doing all the stuff she Mm -hmm. loved. Now she's just hanging around at the house, doesn't even have a job. Of course she's bored. Well, then Roy gets sentenced to a five-year prison stint for robbery, Mm -hmm. and they never saw each other again. But they also didn't get divorced. Nope. So then, at age 18, she begins working at Marco's Cafe in downtown Dallas, where she annoyed the management by offering free meals to the clientele and may have paid for food for the down-and-outs from her own meager wages. While her family insisted these actions were examples of her essential good heart, others have suggested the acts were probably more about showy exhibitionism or rebellion against the management. Mm. 
So then for several months in 1929, Bonnie worked at another cafe on Houston Street in Dallas. As she left this job, however, the Great Depression hit. And Mm -hmm. unable to find work, Parker returned home. Then, fatefully, in January 1930, while staying at a girlfriend's house in West Dallas, she met Clyde Barrow. Oh, yeah. Dun, dun, dun. <laughs> like, do you have, like, sound effects for that? Like, dun, dun, dun. I could uh, try. <laughs> <laughs> a man who would lead her desires and career in an entirely different direction. The meeting between Bonnie and Clyde at her friend's house was, like, instant magic. They were super into each other. Clyde, mm-hmm. mm, he was a fatal attraction. Let's face it. Oh, yeah. So they were seeing each other for a while, and then he moved in with her and her mother, which I feel... Is very interesting that a 1930s mother would make that choice for her teenage daughter to allow that to happen when your daughter's married to somebody else. But okay. And while he was there, the police came and arrested him for committing several robberies and burglaries. Distraught, Bonnie moved to a cousin's house in Waco where Clyde was being detained in jail while awaiting trial. Yep. So from that point forward, at the age of 19, her life goes to hell. Once back in prison, Clyde immediately needed to escape. So by this time, he and Bonnie were like so in love. (laughs) Much to the dismay of her mother, a lovesick Bonnie was more than willing to help the man she called her soulmate. And soon after his conviction, she smuggled a gun into the prison for him. Now, I don't want to ruin the details of Clyde's life by getting detailed on Bonnie's. So I'm just going to add a few highlights. So Bonnie and Clyde like to take photos. And so we have lots of photos of them horsing around with guns and cigars. Bonnie posed with a cigar, although she never smoked them, but it only served to build up her legend. Two young lovers on the run, stealing from the rich, one step ahead of the law. Both (laughs) of them became expert drivers and Bonnie learned how to handle a gun. Both earned a reputation for shooting first and utter ruthlessness. So living life in constant flight is hard on a person. Both she and Clyde were in and out of prison or jail several times and were wounded or injured at various times. The one that almost killed her before she actually was killed was when Clyde flipped their car in 1933 and battery acid leaked onto her leg, causing extreme burns on her leg down to the Mm -hmm. bone. She almost died from it. It was a really long recovery. And after she recovered, she always walked dragging one foot and sometimes needed to be carried And she was always in pain. Mm. Meanwhile, their exploits had become front page news. Clyde was nicknamed the Texas Rattlesnake. (laughs) While Bonnie was known as Suicide Sal because of a poem she had written and said to the press, which I will now treat you to. Mm -hmm. Someday they will go down together and they will bury them side by side. To a few, it means grief. To the law, it's relief. But it's death to Bonnie and Clyde. That feels more like a limerick than an actual poem, but we'll go with it. Well, I think that's part of a bigger poem. Oh, it is. Yeah, that's like the last stanza of it. But still, feels like a limerick. Okay. So now Bonnie and Clyde were driving between states, criming everywhere they went. Police had a problem because they, you know, they stuck near the borders of the states. And once, you know, Bonnie and Clyde crossed the state lines, the police couldn't follow them. The pursuit had to end. 
And we do have to remember that there was quite a crime spree happening across the U.S. at this time. Right. This was the time of Chicago gangsters, John Dillinger, Al Capone, Pretty Boy Floyd. The FBI did not get involved until 1933 when they stole a car in Illinois and drove it across state lines, thus making an interstate crime that the federal government could get involved in. Now, Bonnie and Clyde rarely worked alone. They were collectively known as the Barrow Gang, which mm-hmm. makes sense because so many of them were Barrows. Other members at various times were Elsie and Buck Barrow, Clyde's brothers, Blanche Barrow, Buck's wife, Raymond Hamilton, a young gunman, William Daniel Jones, and Henry Methven. In addition to the automobile theft charge, Bonnie and Clyde were suspects in other crimes. By the time they were killed in 1934, they were believed to have committed 13 murders and several robberies and burglaries. Now, it seems like Clyde did all the killing, but Bonnie definitely helped. Right. Barrow, for example, was suspected of murdering two police officers in Joplin, Missouri, and kidnapping a man and woman in rural Louisiana. He released them near Waldo, Texas. Numerous sightings followed, linking this pair with bank robberies and automobile thefts. Clyde allegedly murdered a man at Hillsborough, Texas, committed robberies at Lufkin in Dallas, Texas, murdered one sheriff and wounded another at Stringtown, Oklahoma, kidnapped a deputy at Carlsbad, New Mexico, stole an automobile at Victoria, Texas, attempted to murder a deputy at Wharton, Texas, committed murder (laughs) and robbery at Abilene in Sherman, Texas, committed murder at Dallas, Texas, abducted a sheriff and the chief of police at Wellington, Texas, and committed murder at Joplin in Columbia, Missouri. Whew, not a breath here. Denise, my God. (laughs) There was a whole gangster chic thing going on, and ladies wanted to look like Bonnie, and men wanted to dress like Clyde. As an interesting side note, though, both Bonnie and Clyde were physically small. Bonnie was about 4'10", 4'11", and Clyde was around 5'7", but their personalities were larger than life. Mm Mm-hmm. On May 23, 1934, Bonnie and Clyde were killed in an ambush set by Texas Ranger Frank Hammer in Louisiana. By the time of their deaths, Bonnie and Clyde were so famous that souvenir seekers at the scene attempted to make off with locks of their hair, pieces of their clothing, and even one of Clyde's ears. Oh my gosh, do things never change? I know, right? Isn't that nuts? Yeah. And actually, there was one story of a guy who was trying to cut off Clyde's trigger finger when a policeman (gasps) caught him and and shoved him away. Yeah. I was like, okay, these are not Catholic relics, people. No. Leave the dead bodies alone. So although they went down together, they were not buried side by side. Clyde was buried at West Dallas Cemetery, while Bonnie was laid first to rest several miles away in Fishtrap Cemetery. Crowds mob Bonnie's burial and a quartet saying, beautiful Isle of Somewhere. Parker was later moved to Crown Hill Memorial Park Cemetery near Love Airfield in Dallas. Her mother had the following inscription carved on the headstone. As the flowers are all made sweeter by the sunshine and the dew, so this old world is made brighter by the lives of folks like you. And that is the story of Bonnie Parker, of Bonnie and Clyde fame, whose mother loved her till the very end. Oh, yeah. I mean, you want to have a mom who loves you like that. Seriously. I mean, she I've seen other stuff from her mother, and she does acknowledge that what Bonnie did was wrong, but she was never going to stop loving her mm-hmm. either. Well, one thing I thought was interesting is that people were, you know, badgering her mother, saying, you need to bury them together. That's what she wanted. That's what your daughter would have wanted. And she said, he had my daughter during life. He can't have her during death. Mm-hmm. 
And I was like, mm, sounds like, you know, Mama Parker wasn't too, you know, pleased with her, with her, not even son-in-law, her daughter's paramour. Yeah, she wasn't. She really wasn't. I don't have as much as I sometimes do with a tree. There, I hit a lot of roadblocks on this one. I'm going to repeat a little bit of what you've said, but not much. Bonnie's parents were Charles Robert Parker and Emma Krause. Now, despite what Wikipedia says, Charles did not die in 1911. I don't know who put that in there. Oh, interesting. Because I actually got that, I think, from the FBI website. Yeah, that's that's a lot more reliable. Um, Charles actually died in 1914 in December. So that was correct. But Wikipedia is wrong, people. Oh, yeah, I had it four years old. So that would have been 1914. Okay, Mm -hmm. sorry, I got mixed up. And he died two days after his 30th birthday. Oh, gosh. Yeah. Do we know what he died from? I believe it was a construction accident. I read that oh, somewhere. Well, he was a bricklayer, so it would make yeah. sense. But it's almost been, I mean, it's not almost been, it's been near impossible to find any documentation on his death other than little brief mentions here and there. Wow. I couldn't even find a death certificate for him. And Texas has death certificates available to look at. So they're one of the states that have that. Bonnie grew up with two siblings, her being the middle child and the oldest daughter. But most of her life, like you mentioned, she was raised by a single mom. And I sometimes wonder if that's part of the reason she clung to these bad guys. Mm-hmm. She didn't have that good role model around her mm-hmm. to show her what a good guy was like. Mm-hmm. But before I go get really started, I did notice a couple themes with this family's tree. Number one, they were poor for the most part. They did not have a lot of money. Number two, there was a lot of divorce. And number three, a lot of people had cancer or died by cancer. Wow. That's interesting. And I kept a log of how many of the divorces, how many of the cancers, and I can't find it right now. So if you want to count along with me, you can. But let's just say it's a lot more than you normally see for the amount of people I'm going to talk about. And these are just the people I got into researching I didn't go through the whole tree all the way down and over. And it was also a difficult tree to research. Not difficult like the last episode with Terry Blair, but it was difficult mainly because of the common last names like Parker, Walker. Yeah. So more time, like years, might yield more results, especially if I spend some time at multiple courthouses across Texas. (laughs) But since that's not possible, I'll share what I do have, as well as any theories I have formed. We'll start by going going back in the tree, going up to the great-grandparents and such, and then we'll end with her siblings, as well as a few interesting tidbits I found in the tree that don't quite Fun. fit in the story. I'm very excited about this. And before we get knee-deep, let's talk about Bonnie's first husband, Roy Thornton. He... <laughs> So why did he go to prison in 1931, right? You said robbery, and that's true. It was November 1931, and he went along with a man by the name of Bud Mace. And this name will become significant later, but he was the brother-in-law of Bonnie's sister. Oh. Mm-hmm. So he, Bud Mace, and four others were accused of robbery with firearms in November 1931 and a kidnapping. One of the other men that was accused in this event was a former Dallas County Sheriff, Skyler Marshall Jr. There was also some bank robberies involved, and Thornton was a welder by trade. 
a skill that he developed at a very young age. I mean, he was welding things by the age of 10. And it was a skill he he used in robberies. Wow. Yeah. In the case of in November 1931, he did not stay in jail that time because he was released because he served as a witness against Skylar Marshall. He was kind of released for a minute. But then in November 1931, he also decided to loot a store with Bud and his brother, Fred Mace, the husband of Bonnie's sister. Wow. And one other person. So he gets thrown back in jail and he goes on trial in October 1932. And guess what? Thornton wasn't so bright. He refused the services of an attorney. Oh, my. That was offered to him. Yes, he served as his own representative. Oh, my. Now, oh my. as it was, and this is the part I found interesting, he was already under a five-year suspended sentence for auto theft when he was arrested, meaning five years. He, from what I gather, he actually got arrested not long after he got married to Bonnie the first time. Mm-hmm. So it got suspended, but that was not a good look for him. <laughs> now, in March 1934, Thornton attempted to escape prison with four other people. The warden of the prison. <laughs> so the, there was an interview with the warden of the prison, and he told the newspaper that he thought Roy did it because he was crazy in love for his wife, Bonnie, who was on the run from the law. However, Roy was serving 99 years for robbery and with firearms, and they weren't going to let him go easily. He did not escape, and but three of his cohorts were shot in that escape attempt. Then wow. in May 1934, on the day after she was killed, there's a quote from him in the paper saying, I'm glad they went out like they did. It was better than getting caught. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. He's a real winner. Yeah. Roy died on October 3rd, 1937, just three and a half years after Bonnie, in another attempted escape with three others. Another man died as well as he did, named Austin Avers. And why is this significant? Oh, you'll love this. Austin Avers is a man who planted guns where Ray Hamilton and two others could find them and make their escape. Oh, my god! Of which Avers was also the getaway driver. So if you ever get a chance to see the movie The Highwaymen, you'll know the event we're talking about because it happens at the beginning. Mm-hmm. They, Yeah, they... The um, Ray Hamilton and others are able to find guns and shoot, shoot their way out of a situation. So. Wow. Uh, Bonnie, even if she had stayed with Roy, I think her, her destiny was kind of sealed in that it wasn't going to go well for her unless she made a change. Right. Mm-hmm. But how did this all lead to her? And I, I do think you're right that Clyde's family probably has more to do with it. I'm already starting to research it, but let's talk about her family. Bonnie's father and mother were Texans, born within nine months of each other, with Charles being the older of the two, born in December 1884. Charles was one of at least seven children, likely more, and Emma, one of eight. So they both came from large families. I imagine they intended to have a large family of their own, but that was not meant to be. Unfortunately, and this is where I struggled quite a bit, I wasn't able to find Charles in any census record. Not in 1900, not in 1910. So that 
I'm like, who are his parents? And I, again, I said, I couldn't find his death certificate either. So what I do know is that Charles and Emma married in McLennan County, Texas on April Fool's Day in 1906. The family lived near Rowena, Texas until Charles's death. Then Emma packed up her three children, Hubert, who was seven at the time, Bonnie, who was four, and Billie Jean, who was two, and headed to Dallas. And they went there because Emma's mother was living there and told her to come and move in with her. Mm-hmm. Emma was the fourth child born to Frank Krause and Mary Jane Walker. Frank and Mary Jane married in a small county just to the southeast of Fort Worth called Erath or Erith. I'm not sure how to pronounce it. So Texans, you can let me know. On August 10th, 1874, they would have 10 children by 1900 with only eight living, according to the 1900 census. It's likely it was at their first two children who didn't live because in 1880, nearly six years after they married, they only had one child who was alive. Oh, my. A baby by the name of Lily Bell, born in January in Waco, Texas. Now, Lily Bell married Henry Clinton Smith five years her junior in 1906. They had one daughter, Fletcher Estelle Awana. I think Fletcher was her nickname. And she was born in 1907. Henry was also native to Texas and worked first as a driller at a rock quarry and later for an oil company. Their marriage ended in divorce before 1930, where I found Lily in Dallas working as a seamstress and overall factory and Fletcher as a waitress. I bring Lily up not only because she was family, but her name came up in several newspaper articles after the death of Bonnie. You would see little mentions of Mrs. Lily Smith. She often stood by her sister Emma and was her support. In fact, in 1940, Lily even lived with sister Emma on Inwood Road in Dallas. Mm. Lily would die at the age of 69 of liver cancer. Mm. Interestingly enough, her ex-husband died nine years before her at the age of 54, also of cancer. I told you, it's a weird pattern. Her daughter, Fletcher, cousin to Bonnie, would marry John F. Kemp in November 1924. Now, this is what I found interesting. And let me be clear that I think this is the same John F. Kemp. So it's possible there might be another John F. Kemp. And I'm mixing them up. But I don't think so. I believe this is John F. Kemp who was married to Fletcher. It's hard to know for certain because they divorced before 1930. So here it goes. John F. Kemp, the John F. Kemp that Fletcher married, was born in 1905 and married Edna Green prior to 1923. So he was young when he got married. And this is the same John who initiated divorce proceedings against said Edna in November 1923. The divorce finalizing in 1924. He then married Fletcher in November 1924, and they divorced before June 1928 when John would remarry Edna. Oh, my gosh. Uh Uh-huh. This very same John would serve time in Texas prison in Huntsville, Texas, in 1950 for forgery. By that time, he was divorced from Edna again. So this is Bonnie's great cousin. Cousin. Okay. Yeah. This is her first cousin. Okay. Fletcher would marry again, but I could never figure out his first name. (laughs) She died in 1962 at the age of 54 as Estelle Awana Holmes. The cause? Ovarian cancer. Wow. Mm -hmm. Another of Emma's siblings was Wiley Krause, born in 1884. 
Around 1910, he married Ruth Evelyn Tennyson, and the couple would have two sons, Glenn and Carlos. This marriage also ended in divorce, sometime between 1920 and 1927. Wiley would never remarry. In October 1944, Wiley died at Woodlawn Hospital in Dallas of tuberculosis, a disease he suffered with for six years. Oh, my God. In fact, he was living at Woodlawn since at least 1940, but perhaps starting in 1938, because at the time, Woodlawn was a wood was called Woodlawn Tuberculosis Hospital. Okay. Wow. For a brief minute, I'm going to talk about his ex, Ruth. Why? Because I found the following um, interesting and a possible explanation to their divorce. Ruth remarried in May 1927 to Albert Horton. Three months later, she gave birth. <laughs> mm-hmm. No name for the baby that I could find. The baby was a preemie who ended up dying on Christmas Day in 1927 with convulsions. I get the impression that the baby spent its entirety of its life at this, what was called a baby camp back then, which is now basically a children's hospital. It was like an early form of children's hospitals in Texas. What I found even more interesting is that in the 1930 census, Albert and Ruth have a son, Albert Jr., who was listed as three years and six months, meaning he was born in 1926. Oh, my. I, have, <laughs> I haven't been able to find his death certificate because he, you know, he's lived past that time where I can get that. So I have no idea if Ruth was his mom. If he is, I have so many. I have lots of little questions on that one. So, and I've been unable to find any prior marriages for Albert, leaving me with, yeah. Mm-hmm. So, let's get back to Bonnie's blood relations, though. Namely, her cousins, Glenn and Carlos. So, this is Ruth and Wiley's sons. We'll start with Glenn. At age 25, he married 19-year-old Jane Parks. The marriage was super short. They divorced by 1940 when she married again. I know nothing more on him other than he died in Sacramento at the age of 66 in 1978. Hmm. Brother Carlos is another story. I have some opinions based on what I saw on paper about him. None good. (laughs) I am happy to admit if I'm wrong, though, so I don't want to offend family members if they happen to listen. He might be a great man or have been a great man, but based on paper, you'll understand why I'm not so sure. So Carlos was four years younger than his brother, born in 1916. After his parents divorced, he went with his father. In 1937, at the age of 21, he married Hazel Tony in Dallas. Ten months later, they welcomed a son, Jerry. Sadly, this marriage wasn't meant to be, as a couple divorced before 1940. Mm. By this time... Wait, you said they divorced before 1940? Yeah. Okay. They got married in 1937 and were divorced by 1940. Okay. By this time, World War II is going on, and a clue to Carlos emerges soon after. I'm not sure what happened in what order, but this because this will give us a little bit more information. But Hazel remarried to a man named Zenas. I'm not going to say his last name, and I'll explain why in a little bit. And Carlos enlists in the army. On his enlistment record, Carlos said he was single and had no dependents. Wow. He has a son named Jerry, but he's claiming he has no dependents. As far as I can tell, Carlos did not have any sort of relationship with his son. It appears that Jerry's stepfather, Zenas, may have adopted Jerry because Jerry goes by his last name to this day. He's alive. And that's why I'm not revealing the last oh, name. Wow. He doesn't go by Kraus. Interesting. Yeah. After the war came to an end, Carlos settled in California. 
In January 1947, he would marry Hildegard Regina Schulen at the Westminster Presbyterian Church in Sacramento. Now, this was a second marriage for Hilda as well. Her first husband was Robert Haslip, a man she married in 1936 at Fort Wayne, Indiana. Hmm. Hmm. It appears they were separated and divorcing by 1940. <gasps> 1940 was a popular year to get divorced, I know. Huh? I mean, what was going on? So this is important because Hilda would give birth to a daughter, Carolyn, in 1943 in Texas. I should add that I'm assuming she gave birth to her and wasn't adopted. I mention all this because Carolyn went by the name Carolyn Krauss until she married. So what's possible is that the the marriage record I got was from a church record. Mm. So I wonder, did Carlos and Hilda get married before 1947 at a um, secular location Mm. and then have a church ceremony later? Mm. Or did Hilda have this child and he adopted her at some point and she took the name? Either one's possible. She's still alive. But Carlos and Hilda divorced within 14 years. Hilda would marry one more time. I have no idea if Carlos maintained any relationship with Carolyn, though. One interesting note, though, when Hilda died in 1996, Social Security had a note that the signature on her card was that of Carlos Kraus. Huh. Yeah. It wasn't her new husband. It wasn't herself. It was Carlos. Interesting. Mm -hmm. Carlos married at least once more. This time to Edna Eileen, not going to say her last name because I believe she's still alive or she could possibly be alive, I'm saying, before 1967. I suspect that they too divorced because I found a record of her going by her maiden name in the 1990s. Carlos died at Sacramento in 2005. And the last I checked, his daughter is happily married, living in one of our great 50 states. (laughs) I'm not going to give stuff away. Um, Now, Emma had at least one sibling who had a steady relationship history, though. At least one. Her younger brother, John Frank. John would live most of his life in Dallas, marrying his wife of 36 years, Kitty Clyde Cook, there in 1917. The couple would have 12 children together. God bless her. (laughs) John died at the age of 60 in 1954. Kitty married again 14 years later. She died of kidney failure due to vaginal cancer. That had spread. Oh, no. Yeah. Oh, and before I forget, John and Kitty had triplets in 1938. Wow, that's very unusual. Yeah. So they were going for their, they're planning to have child number 10 and end up being child number 12. Wow. Yeah. Now, what about Emma's parents, Bonnie's grandparents? Well, Frank Krause is a bit of a mystery. You might be surprised how many of them were born around the same time he was in the United States. Oh, my goodness. Even more confusing is where was he born? A lot of people, I think, assume because of the last name Krauss, he was born in Germany. Mm-hmm. I have no evidence of that. On most census records, he says he was born in New York, as were his parents. There is at least one saying he was born in Kentucky. What I do know is he was born on May 11th, 1851 and died at age 68 in Dallas of stomach cancer. Wow. Yeah. The informant on his death certificate was a son-in-law who didn't know the names of Frank's parents. So it left me with no information there and guessed that his parents were born in Germany. Oh, gosh. But I have nothing showing, I have nothing that supports this. It's possible, but everything he said on a census did not indicate that his family was from Germany at all. (laughs) Wife Mary Jane's history is a bit more clear. Yes. I I do want to say something, though. I mean, considering... 
you know, the anti-German sentiment mm-hmm. at the time, if he had been born in Germany, I could understand why he would not want to say that he was born in Germany. Right. But I mean, it was as early as 1870, he was saying that he was born in New York. Hmm. So before that anti-German sentiment had really begun. Curious. I would understand that if it was a later one. Mm -hmm. But on this, I was a little Hmm. thrown. Interesting. But I couldn't find him in the 1860 census, partly because there were so many Frank Krauses Mm -hmm. and so many from New York. And then I'm like, well, or was it Kentucky? You know, because one time he said New York, one time it was Kentucky. I... Mm -hmm. So it was just too hard to narrow down in a short time span. And even then, yeah. I'm not sure I'd be able to do it because I noticed there are a lot of family people, you know, who've been researching this tree for years that mm-hmm. are still stuck on that one. Mm-hmm. Wife Mary's Jane's history is a bit more clear, but not by a lot. Um, Mary was the second child born to Father Wiley Walker and his wife, Emmeline, on August 16th, 1856 in Shreveport, Louisiana. Emmeline died when Mary was a young child, sometime between 1861 and 1868, likely in Texas. After her death, Wiley married Jane, and they had one son, Edward D. Walker, Wiley's fifth child. Jane likely died before 1900. I was unable to find the family in 1880, so it could have been even earlier. Wiley lived to be at least 83. I found him on the 1910 census living with his oldest son, William, in Ellis County, Texas. Wiley was Bonnie's great-grandfather. Oh, and as for that pattern of cancer, I found six more deaths by cancer beyond the ones already mentioned in this part of the family. Wow. Mm -hmm. It's just, yeah, it's a lot of cancer. So if you're keeping track, (laughs) I was trying to as I was talking, and I can't do both. (laughs) I tried. (laughs) Okay, so now let's go over to Bonnie's paternal line. And we'll talk about her father. Now, not being able to find him in the census might have been that, boy, this is a really super short show. We'll go right to Clyde today. <laughs> but, <laughs> but no. So Bonnie's father, Charles Robert, was born on December 29th, 1884, likely in Texas. His death in 1914 is confirmed by Emma in a book she co-authored in 1934 with Clyde Barrow's sister, Nellie, called Fugitives, the story of Clyde Barrow and Bonnie Parker. And I have skimmed a good portion of that book. It's like an ode to the children. And mm-hmm. I wish she wouldn't have gone with him. And yeah. I get the impression Nellie wasn't so thrilled that he went with her. Mm-hmm. But didn't blame her. <laughs> but right. yeah, like it was like a lethal combination. I'll have that book, a link to it on the website so people can check it out. But because I could find no actual death record and had difficulty confirming his location in the census records, I was left with some questions for his parentage. I mean, Charles or even Robert Parker are not uncommon names. Theories abound on several family trees as to who his parents were. One of the first theories, and this is one of the first ones I went down, was John E. Parker and Sorelda Jane Williams. And I ultimately ruled them out once I found the obituary for their son, Charles, long after 1914 and the death of Bonnie in 1934. So if you're researching and you have those, scratch them, it's not him. The second possibility is James Franklin Parker and Sarah Jane Jackson. Several people have this theory as the, these are the parents of Charles Robert Parker, but make zero sense when you look closely at it. Because first of all, Charles is never living with them and you can find them on all the census records. And secondly, they were 57 when he was born. Mm. 
That's unlikely. Right? I tried to see if he could be a grandchild just to see if I could rule it in and maybe there was a mistake. No. (laughs) Now their children had a child named Charles at that time. The third theory was Robert Lewis Parker and Melinda E. Taylor. It seemed the most likely path, so I continued to go down that way for a while. And I thought, well, I'll just come here and go, this is my theory of who it possibly could be. Then I confirmed it. Um, based on the death certificate and a newspaper story from 1932. Before I share the story, I'll mention that Robert Lewis and Melinda had at least seven children, likely more. Their names were Susan, John, Annie, Laura, Nellie, Charles, and Ed. All but Charles I was able to confirm via census records or death certificates. That's also how I know that Nellie Parks married D.M. Stamps from her death certificate. And then I found a marriage record and all that too, but Now, Nellie and DM lived in Carlsbad, New Mexico. While looking through newspapers, I found a story that left me with no doubt that Nellie was Bonnie's aunt, Charles's sister, making Louis and Mary Jane Bonnie's grandparents. Ooh. So I see this story. It mentions that she's her aunt, and I'll share the story in a minute. But I saw Nellie's death certificate, and it had her parents listed as Louis Parker and Melinda Taylor. Or Betty Taylor, because her middle name's Elizabeth. That's awesome. So some of the information I'm about to share comes from the Carlsbad Current Argus. Well, most of the information I'm going to share comes from different articles from the Carlsbad Current Argus from August 15th to August 17th, 1932. On Saturday, August 14th, Deputy Sheriff Joe Johns went to the home of Mrs. Nellie Stamps. The article on the 15th alleged that Nellie had called the sheriff's office because she was suspicious of two men who arrived at her home with her niece, Bonnie. Bonnie introduced the men as James White and Jack Smith, or Clyde and Ray Hamilton. The story claimed that Nellie was concerned because the men had a large sum of money and several diamonds. DM Stamps, Nellie's husband, would later deny that Nellie called the sheriff. Two days later, it came out that in actual fact, Deputy Sheriff John's saw the car Clyde was driving the day before through town and believed it to be a car that had been reported stolen. So I think he was heading on his way home. He stopped at the Stamps residence to get a closer look at the car. As he looked it over, Clyde and Ray came out asking what he was doing. Johns told them. So Clyde and Ray went and armed themselves and ended up kidnapping Johns with all four in their car loaded up. And they dropped Johns off in San Antonio, Texas, alive the next day. A drive of over 450 miles. Wow. Mm-hmm. So Nellie Stamps was Bonnie's aunt, meaning Charles was her brother. And therefore, okay. Lewis is her grandfather. Wow. Now, the article was interesting because it described the trio. It said that Ray was five foot six, 135 pounds with sandy hair and blue eyes. Clyde was described as being five foot two, 130 pounds with brown eyes. I know you said five, seven. I've seen that reference too, but I also saw a prison record of his and it listed him as five, five. Interesting. Mm-hmm. His I, height varied. I have a tendency to think he was probably more that five, five. Mm-hmm. Kind of like, you know, women will always want on their license, decrease their weight. Men mm-hmm. always increase their height a little bit. It's mm-hmm. the same type of thing. Um, Bonnie was described as maybe 5'1", so 4'11 would work, (laughs) weighing 85 to 90 pounds. Teeny, teeny, tiny. We'll get back to Nellie in a bit. For now, let me tell you all about Bonnie's Parker grandparents. Robert Lewis Parker, and he went by Lewis, was born around 1851 in Georgia 
to South Carolinian John Parker and his wife, Mary Ann. By 1870, Lewis made his way to Independence County, Arkansas, where he met local girl Melinda Elizabeth Taylor. They married on New Year's Day, 1871. He was 19, she was 17. It's nice having some normal ages on this one. The family would leave Texas sometime after 1881. Lewis died around age 46 in 1897. I have no idea why, but again, now we have another single mom in this family. It's likely part of the reason I've also struggled to find the family in the 1900 census. Sometimes you would have a, you know, like Melinda might have gone with her kids and moved in with another family and the census taker might have given them all the same last name as the family they're staying with. There's ways to try to find them, but even those tricks didn't work, especially since a lot of their first names were common too. Melinda didn't remain in Texas, though, and ended up in Tillman, Oklahoma, where she died and was buried near her son, Charles, in 1926 at age 72. Mm -hmm. So let's talk about Charles's siblings, Bonnie's aunts and uncles. Only a couple. Naturally, we have to start with Nellie. Nellie was older than Charles by three years, born in 1881. She was married twice, but I have no idea who her first husband was. What I do know is she was a single mom when she married Dorsey Melvin Stamps. He was 22. She was 37. Oh, my. Yeah. (laughs) He was just two years older than her daughter, Ruth. Oh, my gosh. (laughs) Can you imagine? Yeah. Oh, my gosh. And I got to tell you, I went, I was trying to figure out who that first husband was, and I knew the key to it was Ruth, and I still couldn't do it. I think if I had a lot more time, I might eventually get there, but darn it. Oh, my gosh. Okay. Wow. Now, we need to pause for a brief minute, people, and you need to listen. I'm hoping that one of the many people I'm referring to is listening closely. Dorsey was not Ruth's father. All y'all who have him on the tree as being her father, he was two when she was born. It's not possible. (laughs) Do the math before blindly copying everything, people. Heck, it's not even likely that Ruth even lived with her mom and stepfather. Wow. I'm just like, really? Really? And so (laughs) these people are putting her maiden name as being Stamps. And I'm like, no. I have no idea what her maiden name is, but I know it's not Stamps. (laughs) Uh, So Nellie died 10 years after her niece Bonnie at age 63. Dorsey married again and lived to the age of 79. Bonnie's cousin Ruth lived a long life. She would marry and divorce a man with the last name Hancock by 1920. In 1920, I found her working at a cafe in Ranger, Texas with Tom Ragsdale and his brother Reynolds. In fact, they are listed in the censuses all living together. But it looked like they were all like living and working in the same place type of situation. Like there's the cafe might have had like some apartments behind it or something. There are a lot of starter marriages in this family. Yeah. That's why I meant a lot of divorce. Mm -hmm. I find this particularly interesting because Tom was counted twice in 1920. Interesting. Once was living with Reynolds and Ruth for his job. He was the owner of the restaurant and Ranger. And the other, he was living at his brother-in-law's home in San Angelo, Texas, 142 miles away, mind you, with his wife, Marie, and son, Tom Jr., Marie died two years later in 1922 of an abscess of the brain. Flu was listed as a contributory cause. Contributory cause. That's tragic. Yeah. Now, I can't help but wonder at the circumstances because on her death certificate and probate record, she was listed as a widow. 
So between 1920 and 1922, they were no longer together. Tom and that was pretty typical back then. You would list yourself as a widow, not divorced or not separated. He's just gone. So were Tom and Ruth having an affair and he left Marie for Ruth? Or were the couple breaking up at already and then Ruth, here's Ruth. Uh-huh. Let's start things up with her. I don't know. But the couple would marry soon after Marie died, hmm. like within a month or two. Oh, my gosh. Tom did step up as the widow or widower and was appointed administrator of her estate on the probate record. So then Tom and Ruth left Texas and settled in Carlsbad, New Mexico for the remainder of their lives. They had no children of their own, but they did raise his son. Another sister was Laura. This is Bonnie's aunt through her father, Charles. And she was born in 1879. She married Burl Alexander Chance at age 18 in McLennan County, Texas. McLennan County is where Waco is. They had two sons, Timothy and Simpson, before the couple divorced. Another divorce. And let me tell you about this divorce. (gasps) Tell me. Because I found newspaper articles. Oh, my. Well, and a lot of the newspapers would have like little records about court going on and that court events. And that's where I found it. As early as January 1908, Laura filed for divorce from Burl. But, well, I found the following in the Houston Post on the 26th of February, 1908. In the 61st District Court, a contested divorce suit styled Laura Chance versus B.A. Chance was brought to trial yesterday morning. After several witnesses were examined, further hearing was postponed. The divorce ended up being denied. Really? Yes. Come March, Laura filed for divorce again. The case was heard by the end of May, early June, and the plaintiff, Laura, took a non-suit, meaning that divorce was also denied. Interesting. Oh, but Laura wasn't done. She did not want to stay married to Burl. I'd like to know what was going on with that, but 10 days later, I found the following Laura Chance versus B.A. Chance divorce motion to reinstate denied. So she's tried three times, basically, to try to get this divorce. But when Burl files for divorce just one time, it was granted in February 1909. Wow. Mm -hmm. Of course, with two children, custody was on the docket. From the Houston Post, July 4th, 1909, two children involved. In the divorce suit of B.A. Chance against Laura Chance, a motion has been filed by the plaintiff to issue a writ of restitution for his two children. It is alleged the children are now in Fort Bend County. Process to have the two children produced in court has issued and placed in the hands of the sheriff of Fort Bend County. In this case, B.A. Chance was awarded a judgment for divorce from his wife, Laura Chance, and given the permanent care and custody of their two minor children. Yeah. He was given the custody. Mm Mm-hmm. That was not uncommon then. No. Which is why a lot of women wouldn't want to get divorced. Right. You know, because they lose their kids. She And I mean, so she had to be really determined to be filing divorce for him. Right. If she knew that was a possibility. Now in July, they were back in court with Laura asking the judge to overturn the divorce. I'm thinking it's because she wanted her kids and requested custody of her sons as well. It seems though, between February and July, Burl remarried. He wasn't, yeah. If the divorce was annulled, his current marriage wouldn't be valid. So no worries for him, though. July 13th, Judge Norman Cottrell denied the request to annul the divorce. However, Laura did get temporary custody of her sons. I never did find out the final custody decree, but based on the census, I'd say that she got full custody. 
Okay. Because her son's with, with her from then on out. Yay, Laura. Uh, Laura remarried a John Baker in 1911, but by 1920, that marriage had also ended in divorce. I don't know what else happened to her exactly. I mean, she lived her life. Yeah. As for Bonnie's grandmother, Melinda, this would be Lewis's wife, I was able to go back a bit further, locating her great-great-grandfather, Edward Taylor, born in New Jersey around 1792. Interesting. Yeah. He met up with Missouri girl Lucinda Hubble, 20 years his junior, in Independence County, Arkansas, where they married in 1828. He was 36. She was 16. Oh, my God. Their son, Jackson, was Melinda's father and a Confederate veteran of the Civil War, having served in Company G of the 7th Arkansas Infantry Regiment. Now, he enlisted in June 1861, and being like all good Confederate soldiers, he was captured. Oh, God. But more than (laughs) once. He did not end up in Alton, though. As far as oh, I can Oh, man, tell. that was going to be my next question. I know. I had I anticipated it. So he was first captured on June 30th, 1862, where he was paroled immediately, from what I can tell. Then again at Cave City, Kentucky in September 1862, and was paroled in October. And one more time in early 1863 in Tennessee at the Battle of Murfreesboro. Oh, my goodness. Yeah. You know, he had bad luck. But I, from what I was looking at on that unit, they were pretty active in a lot of big battles, like the Battle of Shiloh, Battle of Murfreesboro, battle, just lots of them. So, And they weren't necessarily winning battles for the Confederacy. So there you go. Jackson was married to Melinda's mother, Sarah Haney, or Sally, in 1852. Sally was actually eight years older than Jackson. When they married, he was 18 and she 26. Oh, my. That had to be somewhat scandalous. I know. You've got to think it was. But Sally died after the Civil War ended, likely at the birth of her youngest daughter, Matilda, uh, in 1867. So Jackson married once more to Mary Sailors. They would have four children of their own. I want to quickly talk about Sally because I saw some stuff that concerned me on people's trees. One more time for the people in the back. Do not copy without verifying the information on trees. I saw claims that Sally was a Mayflower descendant. So I got excited and I checked. See, that's a key. You can look and go, ooh, that's really cool. But verify the information because I wanted to know if it was true. Especially when it's a big thing like a Mayflower thing or Jamestown. I always triple check that. I remember I was helping my um, sister's mother-in-law do her tree. She didn't even know her grandparents. And I was helping look back. And then I noticed that she was related to a famous name. And I'm like, "Mm, let me go triple check. And I did. I I went every which way. And then I verified that she was um, a great, 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 great niece of Daniel Boone. Cool. Right? But especially when you get to those big names. I mean, you should be verifying anyway, no matter who they are. Mm-hmm. It's easy to make mistakes. Genealogists do it all the time. It happens, especially when you deal with common names. But <laughs> just double and triple check just to be on the safe side, especially if it's one of these types of situations. So I checked to see if it was true using the lines people use to make the claim. My conclusion, she's not a Mayflower descendant. I found two parts of the tree that make it if unlikely, if not impossible. But if somebody has documentation to prove me wrong, I welcome it. Show me. Mm-hmm. I'd, I'd be happily go, oh, corrections corner. It looks like I was wrong. <laughs> okay, so that's going back in Bonnie's tree. Let's go to her siblings now. 
We'll start with her older brother, Hubert. Hubert Nicholas Parker, otherwise known as Buster. He was almost three years older than Bonnie, born in December 1907. And it seems that Buster, for the most part, kept his nose clean. On November 24, 1929, Buster married Edith Ray Clay in Bryan County, Oklahoma. In October 1934, five months after the ambush, Edith gave birth to a daughter that they decided to name after his sister, Bonnie Ray Parker. The couple would divorce around 1938, likely due to the stress caused by the events of the ambush in Bonnie and Clyde. Hubert had a hard time dealing with everything afterwards. There was a lot of anger, frustration, because people were linking him to the crimes, Mm -hmm. and he wasn't involved with it. So he drank as a way to cope. Mm. Their daughter went with her mom, who remarried to Samuel Gratis Heberlin in 1938. The marriage was short as Edith died from meningitis on March 7th, 1939. Mm. Yeah. But daughter Bonnie did not end up with her dad. According to Buster's daughter, the following events happened. At her mother's funeral, her maternal grandmother, Ada, and Ada's husband, Rusty Cook, snuck off with little Bonnie before anyone noticed. Ada and Rusty were alcoholics who would often go on benders and couldn't maintain jobs. Mm. They hitchhiked with Bonnie from Texas to Arkansas to Oklahoma and all the way back again. Sometimes taking a bus, most of the time hitchhiking. It didn't matter. At one point, they ended up in Houston and were arrested. Lil Bonnie was placed in an orphanage, taken away from the two. Now, while she's gone with Ada and Rusty, her dad, Hubert, and his sister, Billie Jean, were looking for her. It took three years of searching, but they found Bonnie Ray and brought her back to Dallas. Now, Buster had remarried to a woman by the name of Vivian, but he wasn't fit to raise Bonnie. So Billie Jean took her and raised her eventually changing her name to Rhea Lean Frazier, a name that provided her great relief as her original name often made her a target for teasing and bullies, mm-hmm. being Bonnie Parker. Hubert died in 1964 at age 56 of pneumonia and stomach cancer. Rhea Lean has been married three times, divorcing her first two husbands, and is still alive to this day. She's in her 80s. And she's, there's newspaper reports she's been talking about stuff. And we'll talk a little bit more about her later because she's doing, doing something with somebody on the Barrow side recently. But she had three children. Her youngest sadly died in a parasailing accident at the age of 25 in 1983. Bonnie's youngest sister was Billie Jean, born in December 1912. And she did not like the name Billie, according to those that knew her, namely Rhea Lean, because there's some interviews with her that have said this. And so those who knew and loved her called her Jean. So that's what we'll call her, even though we didn't know her. Jean was not only around the mess, but was somewhat a part of it with Bonnie and Clyde. Hmm. In September 1928, at the age of 15, just like her sister Bonnie, she got married. She married. Oh, man. I know. She married Fred Alexander Mace Sr. Nine months later, Jean gave birth to son Fred Jr., or as they like to call him, Buddy. Two years after that, in November, the family added little Mitzi Jacqueline. I like the name. I do too. Sadly, tragedy would come to Jean and her husband when just one month shy of her second birthday, Mitzi died. Four days later, son Fred died as well. Oh no. Yeah. The cause of death for both was attributed to polio. Oh no. I believe Mitzi, one of them said also contained like, contagious diarrhea or something and the other one had uh, what's that word couldn't get enough water 
Um, Dehydrating. Dehydration. So get your vaccines, people. Yes. She never had any more children other than Rhea, who she cared for as if it was her own daughter. Now, Fred wasn't even at home for the deaths of his children. Where was he? (gasps) You want to guess? I would say out catting around. No, he was in prison. Oh, my gosh. Yep. Wow. In December 1932, Fred was sent to Huntsville for a two to ten year stint for burglary. Now, remember, he was kind of hanging out with his brother, Bud, who got arrested with Roy Thornton. Mm -hmm. A few months later, Fred decided he was done with being locked up. On March 12, 1933, he allegedly led three others in a prison break, including Bonnie's husband, Roy Thornton. Fred headed straight home to Dallas, where, (laughs) oh my gosh, I mixed something up, where he was immediately caught. Yeah, and to escape, he and another um, person by the name of Oscar Lafferty overpowered the guard and bound and gagged him. So, but yeah, he was captured the very next day at his house. If you're going to escape, I guess... Make it worthwhile? Wow. I, I don't know. Wow. Um, one day before the ambush of Bonnie and Clyde, Gene was arrested for the shooting death of two state highway patrolmen on Easter Sunday, which happened to be April 1st. A farmer had identified Gene as one of the shooters, the other being Floyd Hamilton, brother of Ray Hamilton. Mm. The next day, Gene would learn of the death of her sister Bonnie while in jail. Gene was cleared of the murders on May 31st. According to the Fort Worth Star-Telegram on June 1st, 1934, Judge George Hosey dismissed the charges against her and Ray Hamilton's brother, Floyd, followed by the following statement. Billy Mace, I have been a judge of this court 17 years, and this is the first time this has ever happened. This is the first time a judge of the court has called a prisoner before the court and before him to apologize for an error of the law. You have been done a wrong. You have been brought from Dallas here and sent from here to Dallas and back again and put behind the bars for two weeks because possibly someone swore a lie. And I have called you before me to tell you that I want to apologize to you for the law. The law made a mistake in your instance. If there is anything I can ever do to make amends for the gross injustice that has been done to you, you call on us. You may go now into God's free air and sunshine. You are free. You may go. But Judge Hosey wasn't much of a help when the harboring trials were held in February 1935, where 20 people were charged with harboring Bonnie and Clyde, including Billy Mace Mm. and Bonnie's mother, Emma. Of course, Hosey couldn't help much as these were federal charges. Wow. Emma was in the harboring trial. Emma ended up being sentenced to 30 days in jail. And Jean was sentenced to one year and one day at Alderson Prison in West Virginia. Jean would be released by May 1936. Her husband, Fred, was released on parole in December of 36. Fred was sent back to prison in March 1939 for felony theft and giving chase to police, a violation of his parole. He was released for good by September 1940. I I don't think this is a huge surprise, but Fred and Jean would divorce. (laughs) She next married Troy Frazier in 1946, which was another marriage that ended in divorce. She last married Arthur Moon. The marriage came to an end in 1993 when Jean died at the age of 80. Wow. Mm-hmm. Now here are some, oh, you have something? Well, I was going to say she found love at the end. That's She nice. did. And, and that is nice. Here's some random notes and facts on the family that I just thought might interest some of our, interest some of our listeners. Ooh. And these are family members. I felt I needed to know, but didn't. 
fit in the general um, narrative. Uh, the first one is Emma Krause's brother, Samuel. He was born in 1890 and enlisted or was drafted in the army for World War I. He served in Germany as a cook for Company F of the 30- 395th Infantry 90th Division. But he never made it back to Texas. Oh, no. He died, he died in World yeah. War One. Yep. He died on March 7th, 1919 of disease. Oh, yeah. Mm-hmm. Probably the Spanish flu. I don't know. Mm-hmm. Or something. But or cholera. There's so many. Mm-hmm. And there's... I found a picture of him listed with an uh, has other pictures of people who died in World War One, mm-hmm. and the cause is listed. And on his, it was just disease, but there were a lot of people with disease listed. Oh yeah. Uh, the second is going back to Emma's half uncle Edward Walker. He had six children. His oldest was Dewey, and in 1918, both Edward and Dewey died of the Spanish flu. Oh God! Get mm-hmm. your vaccinations, people. Yes, but wait, there's more. Oh, God. Because Edward's oldest daughter was Edna Florence. She never married and died at the age of 49. When I looked at her death certificate, I was startled by what I found. Cause of death was was unclear. It said undiagnosed disease manifest by coma, shock, meningeal irritation, and fever. But that's not what caught my attention the most. It was a listing of other significant conditions. Female pseudohermaphrodite. Whoa. I know. I was like, yeah, I was surprised. I've never had that come up on a before. That term really isn't used anymore. It's normally now I think they call it intersex, unless you know of another term for it. But what a female pseudohermaphrodite meant clinically is that the person is born with an XX chromosomes and has female internal genitalia, but there's also some masculization of the external genitalia. Like an alert, it could be almost anything, but like an enlarged clitoris to the point it might look like a penis or or it's just engorged. Mm -hmm. We don't know in specific circumstances, but that I I just don't know that that would be a contributory cause. I doubt Mm it. Wow. And last but not least, I never told you what happened to Emma, um, Bonnie's mother. She died on September 21st, 1944 in Dallas of tuberculosis. Mm. All that remains of the family are Rhea Linder, that's Emma's granddaughter, and two great-grandchildren. Wow. And that is the family tree of Bonnie Parker. Wow. And I would have put Thornton, but I didn't feel right doing that because... Wow. Bonnie Parker, Thornton, yeah, no. (laughs) Yeah, Yeah, seriously. Yeah, nobody called her that. I think my count, I can't remember, I think it was like 12 or 13... forces and like 14 deaths with cancer wow i mean the num. i just was every time i'm like did anybody stay married in this family oh my gosh another case of cancer well the other thing i kind of wonder and this is just me spitballing here is Mm -hmm. considering that they all kind of came from the same areas of the country for the most part Mm -hmm. i'm wondering if there wasn't some sort of environmental thing going on that so many of them you know and you know they all smoked probably it seemed to be a popular habit in the family so that would definitely exacerbate things but well it was a popular habit for a lot of people at that time Mm -hmm. and i'm just i don't know it just kind of makes me wonder because that is an unusually high rate of cancer in a family it is and it was just shocking and it just made you wonder what but yeah and they were all in dallas like west dallas area Mm -hmm. For yeah. the most part, that family. So it, it 
it brings up lots of questions because there had to be something going on. That's just Mm -hmm. so unusual. Yeah. Is there some genetic connection on cancer? Yes. All cancers? No. Mm -hmm. Yeah. (laughs) And this was different types of cancer from ovarian to vaginal to stomach to renal to, I mean, liver. It was just... They had all different kinds of cancers, which mm-hmm. that just seems so odd, you know? Mm-hmm. And I'd be interested to know if the surviving family members are suffering from any unusual illnesses. I'd love to know that too. But just yeah, curiosity. this is, you know, I, I, w- I read that article that you sent me and mm-hmm. I have to admit it had never occurred to me how difficult it would have had to have been to have been a relative of Bonnie or Clyde. And mm-hmm. be so notorious, such that you can't get work. Nobody wants you to move to right. the neighborhood. Nobody wants the kids in their schools. You know, I mean, it was, I can't even imagine. I can't even imagine. And I think it's partly because the law painted the family as cohorts in the mm-hmm. crimes. And then they yeah. do the harboring trial and accusing these family members of being responsible for the murders, essentially. But, well, you harbored them. Mm-hmm. Therefore, you're responsible no. And it wasn't so much, they weren't hiding them so much. Mm-hmm. They would pop by, say hello, and they'd leave. Well, and they had, one of the girls was 14 years old and got a two-hour mm-hmm. prison sentence for her. I mean, yep. harboring a 14-year-old girl accused of harboring. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's ridiculous. I think that's Clyde's sister. Yeah. Yeah. And I'm just like, it's ridiculous what they were doing. Yeah. But I, I imagine... <laughs> That law enforcement was really angry about how long it took oh. them, how long they evaded, and they wanted to just make a spectacle out of it, you know, as a warning for others. Well, right. Well, and, you know, the feds didn't get involved until when, when was it they got involved? Was 1933. It, it wasn't until 1933 yeah. because, and the only reason they were able to is because they stole a car in Illinois and then they, mm-hmm. I guess they dumped it in Missouri or something missouri or arkansas and because they went across state state lines lines. yeah and that's the reason the feds could even get involved because otherwise it was all local crimes and they couldn't do anything Mm -hmm. about that and that's who went after them for the harboring local wasn't interested in going that it was the feds who decided Mm -hmm. to make sure that everybody was punished Mm -hmm. and i do know that um billy jean ended up moving her family at one point to arkansas and then they went back to texas but they went down to um Gladewater, I think it is, mm-hmm. but they went to a different part mm-hmm. of the Dallas area so that they wouldn't ha- face as much ostracism and mm-hmm. all the things that went with Bonnie and Clyde. But since Billie Jean was arrested and her image was splashed on the papers too, mm-hmm. it had to have been hard to get away from that. Yeah. Yeah. And then when we meet next time, we're going to talk about Clyde <sighs> and there's some of that. And I, when I was looking for him and I can't wait to share this, I'll share a little snippet now, but I found um, his mother's obituary. Oh, wow. Cue me. Mm-hmm. And it wasn't an official obituary. It was one of those things from the newspaper. So-and-so has died type of thing. Uh-huh. And they go, all but two of her children are in prison right now. And only one was able to go. Oh my God. And kind of emphasizing, yeah, she couldn't raise good kids. All her kids were wow. lawbreakers. Wow. You know, I have to say, you uncovered more criminal activity on Bonnie's side of the family than I thought would be there. I, yeah, I'll be I was kind of surprised, but it mm-hmm. was more the people they married mm-hmm. that was themselves. So what attracted Billie Jean and Bonnie to 
men bad boys. Mm-hmm. And the only connection I can come up with is they move with their mom after their dad dies. They don't have that older male role model. Mm-hmm. I mean, they have their older brother, but he's not old enough to really give that good role model. Mm-hmm. And with their grandmother, who's also not as a widow. Mm-hmm. And you just, she had uncles and stuff. Were they not around? I mm-hmm. Or not not enough of a presence in their life to provide that. Or I, I'm sure that's not something they thought of back then either, that you needed to have that good role model. Yeah, I'm sure not. Well, and I mean, they grew up in a rough neighborhood. Everyone around them, it's very rough and tumble, you know, a mm-hmm. lot of petty crime going on around them. And, you know, there's only so much a mom can do about that, you know? Right. And it gets glamorized. And of course, you know, the, the movies were becoming a thing, you know, um, Mm-hmm. And talkies were just starting to come around. And so there was this and there, this whole glamorous Hollywood thing and all the glamour of the gangster life. You know, I mean, I mean, kids fall prey to it today, much less, you know, back True. then when it was like, hey, you can go live a glamorous life as a gangster's mall or you can sit here and watch the corn grow. Your choice. I found a newspaper article. I'll have to include it. It had a picture of all these women who got involved with gangsters. Oh gosh, gangsters and their their women type mm-hmm. of thing. And there, there's even part of a picture with Billy Jean, Cumi, Barrow, and Emma Parker showing them sitting there at the trial, <laughs> and it's just like, oh my goodness. You know, the real violence wasn't done by Bonnie. You know, no. I mean, Bonnie would shoot you know, at people. Doesn't seem like she hit him very often, if at all. She shot into the air a lot for warning shots and stuff like that. So, I mean, not saying she couldn't have or that she didn't kill anybody. I'm just saying that her environment probably influenced her quite a bit. Well, and she was young and impressionable Mm -hmm. with a guy who had some charisma. Mm -hmm. Yeah, he was purportedly really handsome. Yeah, and I've seen some pictures of him. I think he's okay to look at. Yeah. They're almost the same age. Mm-hmm. So, but he had been involved in crime before he got involved with her. Apparently she was like, I saw pictures of Roy Thornton. He was handsome. Mm-hmm. Like she falls over without that man around in her life or a mom who was firmer mm-hmm. on, that's not how a man should treat you. It is handy to have a dad around who knows how to, you know, clean his gun on the front porch when the man comes to visit. You know, it's it's a handy thing to have if you're a teenage girl. Sometimes, yeah. I mean, I know there's a lot of women out there who do a fine job raising their daughters. Absolutely. But mm-hmm. on their own. But I think that we know more now. Oh, yeah. Well, and just kids grew up faster, you know? Mm-hmm. Like the fact that she was in school till she was 17 was, or till she was 16 was like, yeah, that's enough learning, you know? Oh yeah. They probably never thought, hey, maybe Bonnie will go to college. You know, there was, I doubt there was any kind of thought as to that. It was just, well, she can read and she can write. She can do simple math. She can, she can do good enough to be a waitress. That's fine. You know? So we just, Mm -hmm. we just know so much more now than we used to. Oh yeah. My grandpa was born three years after Bonnie and- Mm -hmm. I think he had a sixth or eighth grade education. That was it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. My grandfather was the same. He had like a fifth grade education. Yeah. Yeah. And you notice in the 1940 census, so many of those where you're like, oh, it's almost exciting. When you're like, ooh, college. Yeah. 
Yeah. And, you know, it's not to disparage any work because all honest work is honorable. Oh, no. It's just that um, the point of an education is to allow people to have choices in their life and to make good decisions for their mm-hmm. own life, no matter what their career is. And um, yeah. you can see there were a lot of poor choices made oh, yes. in, in this particular family. So, but this was a fun show. Thank you. This was like You're really welcome. interesting. And so then we're going to hit Clyde next time, huh? Yeah, definitely. So are you reading anything interesting right now or watching anything interesting? Um, no, other than the highwaymen. And we already talked about that. Mm-hmm. Um, although, That's true. so I got discovery plus, um, comes Ooh. free with my phone plan and there's ah. a show on it called the laundry guy who like people bring these, um, like vintage clothes to him or old quilts. And they're like, we don't know what to do about it. Like this wedding dress that had been through a fire and was smoke covered and he gets them all clean and lovely. And it's like, so crazy to watch it you know it's like i mean partly it's kind of gross you know because stains but you um but then to watch how he's like okay this is just how you do it and you know most people use way too much soap in their laundry you really only need like a tablespoon and you know it was just kind of, which i'm thinking wow i put a lot more than a tablespoon of soap in my laundry and i'm like i need to stop doing that um but one of the things he pointed out that ruins clothes is using too much laundry detergent because it sticks in your clothes and it doesn't get rinsed out properly and so it causes the fibers to break down so i was like well there's a handy bit of knowledge i should share with the public i you know i don't use as much as i used to because i used to um i hand washed all my girls diapers because we did cloth diapers Mm -hmm. and i read that you needed to use less than you thought because they would wear over time and i ended up having three kids and they all use the same diapers so i was Mm -hmm. pretty good at keeping up but i forget to apply that to actually laundering my clothes (laughs) yeah i know isn't that funny (sighs) And there was one where she had a baby quilt that had been an Afghan that had been crocheted uh, by her mother. And they're like, it feels like sticky, right? And it felt like Velcro. Like, you know how when you have Mm. like uh, microfiber attached to something, it just kind of peels? That's how the whole crocheted Afghan was. (gasps) And she's like, I don't even know what to do. And he's like, okay. He goes, I've honestly never dealt with anything quite like this, but we'll see what we can do. And the root of the problem was it had too much soap. And so like the first thing they did was try to get all of the soap and stuff out of it. And then when, by the time he was done, it was like super soft and lovely. So it just like blew my mind, blew my mind. So, but I find that stuff fascinating. That is so cool. You need to check out cleaning TikTok then. Oh, I probably should. I'll hook you up. Yeah. Because there's a gal I started following because she's a professional housekeeper and she's showing all these tricks. Oh, that's cool. Nice. Apparently Dawn combined with vinegar is like a miracle. Interesting. So, yeah. Now, I've been reading in a reading frenzy lately. (laughs) Oh, yeah? What have you been reading? Oh, my gosh. So much. Right now I'm reading a book called Second Born by Amy Bartol. It's a young adult dystopian type of book. And it's pretty good. But, I mean, I've gone through... (laughs) I'm also reading a second book to that, The Curse of the Spellmans. I'm reading two at once lately. Okay. okay. And what it is, is, okay, so I have Amazon Prime, and I don't know if you know this, and this goes for the whole audience, but if you have Amazon Prime, 
you get free choice on books once a month mm-hmm. for Kindle books. Mm-hmm. And so I've been choosing books, but I don't read from the Kindle. I'm like having the book in my hand. Well, at night, that's kind of hard when my husband's asleep and I'm wanting to read. And so I started reading books at night in my room on my tablet. Mm-hmm. So now I'm reading books there and I read the hard books during the day. It's gotten really messy. <laughs> so uh, my goal was to read 40 books this year. I'm already at like 22. Nice. Because I'm I'm just, I can't get enough of certain books. Mm-hmm. And then other books I'll start and go, yeah, I'm not ready in the mood for that one actually and i'll put it to the side i'll come back to it later and read a few more mm-hmm. pages and put it down this has been my life like i have p.s i love you oh yeah by cecilia That's so Ahern. good and it's a good book don't get me wrong but it's so different from the movie mm-hmm. off the top that i'm like okay this is good but i can't let go of the movie quite mm-hmm. so i'm kind of in that weird space but yeah i can't get enough but i will say i still prefer having the physical book in my hand. There's nothing quite like when you're done with a book, closing it and holding that book and knowing you're done. It doesn't have the same feel with a Kindle when you go close app. <laughs> well, just... I find I get eye strain, you know, if I'm looking at my mm-hmm. electronic devices too much. So I do too. I'm, um, and they say if you have use it like with the white print on the dark background, that should help that. It does not help me. It makes it worse. Mm. So I keep mine with the white background and the, the dark print. But um, I find that my eyes get tired a lot faster reading with an electronic device than a paper book. Yeah. And for me, it started with one book that I read. And then to read the next book, I could read it for free if I got Kindle Unlimited Mm -hmm. on a free trial for two months. So this is part of the reason I'm reading like crazy because I got the free for two months and I'm going to end it after the two months. Uh Uh-huh. But I have, I'm like, oh, I have all these books I need to read now uh-huh. before the two months runs out. Yeah. It, it's, I get my that. My husband's like, I'm not sleeping very much at night because I'm too busy reading. And I think my husband's going to give me a lecture soon. He realizes <laughs> why I'm so tired every day. Oh, Luckily, yeah. he doesn't always listen to the podcast. He's listened a couple times. But it's enough that I think I can, you know. Yeah. He, he might miss this conversation. That's so funny. <laughs> Oh, my gosh. Well, this was a delight, Denise. I'm so glad we had the chance to do this. And we will get together again here soon. And we'll talk about Clyde. And thanks, everybody, for joining us. It was lovely, everyone. Bye. Thank you so much for joining us on Murderous Roots, where murder and family meet. Don't forget to subscribe so you don't miss an episode, and please leave us a review. You can find more information on this episode and others at MurderousRoots.com. If you have a story you'd like to share with us, you can email us at podcast at MurderousRoots.com.